I was getting up in the morning, literally crawling from my bed to the bathroom to pour myself the hottest bath I could stand so I could just touch my toes and function. I was afraid to tell anybody. I was afraid to tell my coach or my doctor because you know, I was afraid they would say, you gotta back off, you can't do this. But I just kind of pushed through. When I told my co-author, Eric Marcus, he said, you don't understand, you won two Olympic gold medals on AZT. I said, oh, so it's not a performance enhancing drug. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't, yeah. I didn't have anybody to talk to, but in many ways, ignorance is bliss. Welcome to The Other Three Years, a show for anyone who has an Olympic-sized dream they want to turn into a reality. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of The Other Three Years podcast. This week on the podcast, I have guest Greg Luganis. So Greg has been called the best American diver ever, and for seriously good reason. He is a three-time Olympian, five-time Olympic medalist, most notably sweeping the men's diving events in both 1984 and 1988. So at both those Olympics, he won both gold medals that were offered for men's diving crazy impressive and I had a really great time speaking with Greg and feel like I learned a lot from our conversation we talked about kind of his whole athletic journey and how he overcame adversity time and time again we also talked about the importance of mindfulness and visualization practice for him amongst many other things so it was a really awesome conversation and I'm so excited to share it with all of you but before we get into that here is an update on what's currently going on in my training so I'm still in Sarasota last weekend we had the uh, winter speed order and I had definitely like the worst performance that I've ever had because I have some personal things going on which you know I don't really feel comfortable talking about which I think is okay and I also like own my results and I'm not saying that to give them an excuse those are the results that I had and you know there are reasons for it reasons and excuses aren't the same thing so it's definitely been a hard time and obviously really frustrating for me because you know I've put a lot into training over the past few years and especially this year and to have this stuff happening right now is really really frustrating but I can't really like dwell on the past or be mad about circumstances I kind of only can look to the future and control what I can control so I'm just lucky that other people are helping me and figuring out what I can do to get back to where I need to be and that's all I'm doing and while it was frustrating and it continues to be frustrating and I never want to not have my best performance. I'm also like proud of myself that I did race. I think taking the easy road out would be when you're not prepared for something, just not showing up and I didn't do that. So I think I'm still like fighting good fight, so to speak. And it, you know, it is the Olympic year and Olympic selection is going to happen really soon. So I've just been trying to, like I said, control what I can control and do the best training for me possible so that I can achieve the goals that I want to achieve but we did have this race and a lot of people did really great jobs and you know I'm so happy for all those people it's really awesome to see other people going fast and achieving things maybe that they haven't achieved before or maybe they didn't have the best year last year and coming back better year this year and I think that's really awesome you know I don't I think that you can at one time both be like frustrated with your own performance and happy for other people's performances so you know I'm really happy for other people and 
it's really motivating for me, you know, to to want to keep getting healthier and better and back to feeling good. <laughs> Other than that, we moved uh, out of our hotel and I'm in a Airbnb now, which is nice. Um, not that the hotel wasn't nice, but it can be nice to change things up every now and again. And now there's kind of a two week period of time before the official Olympic selection camp starts. So it's not really a break, but it's kind of a little bit of a break. The past couple of days, there haven't really been any coaches around. Tomorrow, Wednesday, we'll start having some coach sessions again. So it's a little bit of like a mental break, I think. And also the stakes aren't quite as high for these next two weeks. So a little bit of time for people to just decompress because then we're going to go into official selection camp. So about really intense time. So nice to have a few a few weeks of a little bit less stressful time before we get into that. That's kind of what's been going on. But I also have to say, like, I am very grateful for kind of the support that people are giving me. It's really nice and it's very appreciated. And yeah, I don't know, like losing sucks. There's nothing there's nothing else you can say about it. And not feeling like yourself sucks, I think, is really the thing. Like losing when you knew that your performance was everything you could have given is an easy pill to swallow. But losing when you know that that wasn't even close to what you're capable of is like frustrating. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's like sports. So these things happen. But I'm lucky that it's February (laughs) and not July. So there's not a lot of time, but there is time. So just kind of trying to keep my head on straight and do my thing because... I know that if I can correct ship and get where I need to go, this is just going to have been a blip, but blips feel really big in the moment. (laughs) So now it is time for my conversation with Greg Luganis. Yes. Well, I'm so excited. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Sure. I have been researching you and like there are just so many directions that we can take i'd love to start just chatting a little bit about your career and you Mm -hmm. were so young you know when you got into all of it right and at your first olympics so what was that like like competing on that stage at 16 i think so leading up to the Olympics and my first Olympics in 1976, where I came from, uh, I was adopted. I, I spent my first nine months in foster care and then was finally adopted by, you know, uh, Francis and Peter Luganus. So through, <laughs> through there, I, I, I started taking dance lessons because my sister was taking dance. My mother didn't want, you know, klutzy kid running around the house knocking down lamps so she got her lessons and I was a year and a half and she was taking her to lessons and I I used to sneak into the studio and imitate what they were doing and so at a year and a half the teacher said oh we'll let him stay and see what he can learn and so uh, I had my first performance on stage when I was three and so that was kind of the beginning and then I got a partner And then when I got a partner, we couldn't start competing in talent contests until I turned six. 
And so we did recitals, we did parades, we did plays, we did all types of performing. And then once we started in, you know, doing talent contests, we started winning everything. And then Eleanor went into gymnastics and I followed her into gymnastics. And that was my first love. I, I really wanted to make the Olympic team in gymnastics. And then we had a pool built in our backyard. So I was about seven when we went into gymnastics. And then I was eight when the pool was built. And then that's when my mother, I was trying some of my gymnastics stunts off the diving board at home and my mother didn't want me to kill myself. So she got me lessons. <laughs> and so first day out to lessons, the coach was, oh my God, you know, we join the team the club team and I said oh, I'll think about it you know because I was doing dance I was doing acrobatics I was doing you know all of these things and you know adding diving to this this that was crazy but as it turned out I got Osney slaughters which is very common for young kids who are very active and so water on the knee and so the doctor said my advice to you is you know you should quit the diving the di dance because we were dancing on concrete the acrobatics all of that stuff except diving because you're landing in water. And mm. so all of those things, all of those different disciplines that I was like directing my energy into was focused down into one discipline, into diving. And then that's when my diving career really shot through the roof. I, year later, I was world champion for my age group. And then three years later, I was on my first Olympic team. Wow, that's quite the like meteoric rise. And then you yeah. got a silver medal at your first Olympics, right? Yeah, and, and 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 the thing was, okay, so in preparation for Montreal, I was diving with Dr. Sammy Lee, and Dr. Sammy Lee won two gold medals in 48 and 52, and then he helped coach Bobby Webster from the U.S., who won two Olympic gold medals, 60-64, I believe. And then Klaus DiBiase from Italy was going for his third Olympic gold medal. So my sole purpose on this planet was to prevent Klaus from winning that gold medal. And so all of our training, you know, and this is what I talk to the people that I work with. I was training as if I was at the Olympic Games, even at 16. So I'm imagining what that would look like, what that would feel like, what that would smell like, all of that stuff. So the, you know, visualization stuff. And then Dr. Lee would say, okay, you're behind by 20 points. You need nines on this dive. You know, it's like kids playing basketball, you know, and they're emulating their favorite player and say, oh, you know, clock's running out and, and he throws the ball and he shoots. And sometimes you're successful, sometimes you're not. More often than not, you're not. But um, you practice with that intensity so that when I got to Montreal, I didn't feel prepared for the springboard because it wasn't anticipated that I would make the springboard team. But I did win the three-meter springboard tr Olympic trials on three-meter springboard and 10-meter platform. But I just wasn't really prepared for the springboard. But platform, I, I, I was. And so... Klaus and I were going dive for dive, happened to miss my ninth dive. That was really tough. That was really tough. Also, you know, the highest rate of suicides amongst Olympians is Olympic silver medalists. You know, and, and I was a part of that group. I mean, I tried to commit suicide after that. I, you know, I didn't understand how people were celebrating me when I felt like such a failure. Wow. You know? Yeah. Did you feel like all of that pressure was kind of self 
inflicted or did you feel like external pressures? Um, well, that was, uh, I was only 16. So yeah. I, I, I was only, I, I was taking on Dr. Lee's dream. Um, mm -hmm. And so I let him down. He let me know it. It was tough. It was tough. I just didn't understand when I went back to high school why everybody was celebrating me. And I felt like a fraud. I felt like a failure. I thought, you know, I, I, I just didn't understand it. I felt like, you know, the, the world would be a better place without me. That's horrible. How did you, like, work through that, especially at such a young age? Um, well, my mother was very, very supportive. She wanted me to have fun. If it's not fun, don't do it. And also that we make choices. Everything that I did, it was a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, so we have to own the choices we make. And sometimes we make choices to please other people. Ultimately, we have to live with the choices that we do make and own them. So that was one of the things that was incredible. Also, I, I went to Ron O'Brien's diving camp when I was 15 and 75. So it was a year before the, uh, the Olympic trials. And that's really how I qualified for the uh, Olympic trials. You know, there are certain skills that he taught me so that I could be successful. And then he, he came out to California in 78. And so then I started diving with him. He understood me. He, he, he got me. I'm not competitive. I'm a performer. Mm. And there's a difference. It was all about the performance. Uh, he gave me performance goals. And, and we devised games. Like one of the things to, in, in order to break 700 on 10 meter platform back in my day, I had to average eight and a halves or better on all 10 dives that I executed. And so we turned that into a game, you know, that we played the 700 game. One time we played it, it was, uh, you know, the gale force winds, we were training in Miami, gale force winds. It was like rain is coming in sideways into the platform the wind is blowing into the platform so it feels precarious and so we said okay weather's so horrendous we'll, we'll play the 700 game because then i could potentially get out and just do one of each of all of my dives and so i went along i was going back and forth over that eight and a half mark and then it came down to the last dive, my reverse three and a half. And then I think I, I just needed eights. And I think he gave me a nine. And says, all right, awesome, great. So I packed up my stuff and went about my business, ran errands and all, and I showed up to the pool the next day. And he said, Greg, he pulled, pulled me aside. He said, Greg, you were the only person who got in the pool yesterday. So wow. it, 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 it's, it's like, what are you gonna do that no one else is gonna do? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, to make yeah. that difference, you know, of but you getting, were having fun. Yeah. Of getting on the phone, get, getting on the podium. You know, what, what are you going to do to get there that nobody else is going to do? Yeah. Right. No, a hundred percent. I just finished, uh, once a runner. Have you read it? I haven't. Oh, it's, it's good. It's a novel. Um, yeah. but it's about like this fictional university that's based on the university of Florida. Um, hmm. And these distance runners, there's a uh, man that had previously 
won like a gold medal, um, I think in the 10,000 meters at the Olympics that still trains. He's getting his PhD, so he's still training at the university. And he just sort of incentivizes them to be doing these crazy workouts. And because it's kind of like, yeah, what are you doing that nobody else is doing? And there's there's no secret. You just have to work harder. And so it was yeah. a very similar um, theme. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, really training smart. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's one thing, you know, especially like in the sport of diving, you know, the Chinese divers, they're subsidized by their government. You know, if they do well, they're taken care of for the rest of their lives. It's a very different dynamic. And they have such uh, an incredible talent pool to choose from um, because diving is a high value sport in their culture. It's high repetitions, you know, it's, 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 it's a different mentality. It is muscle memory, total muscle memory, you know, going through again and again and again, that type of training, you do risk injury and illness, you know, with that, you know, heightened number of repetitions. What I learned is, you know, the training that I did, I trained smart. I learned if, if I got an adjustment to make and I made that adjustment, I learned what that was. What did that look like? What did that feel like? What did that taste like? All of the sensations of what that was to lock that in, you know, because a lot of times we don't take the time to lock in what we do right. You know, we get t- told what we do wrong so often, but then once we get it right, locking in what we do right also, I mean, we have a tendency, you know, as sensitive beings, you know, to focus on the negative, to focus on what we did wrong. Oh, but, but then if you put your focus there, then your attention is there and you're more apt to do the thing that was wrong. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I feel yeah. like it's so easy to focus on what you did wrong, though. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we yeah. just seem, seem to be kind of wired that way. But really, if you flip that and think about, you know, okay, what did I do right? That's, that's when things go right mm-hmm. because you're focusing on, on what you should be focusing on. Because I remember uh, my last dive at the Seoul Olympics, Shun Ni, he was 14 years old. I was 28. He was leading by three points going into last, that last dive. I knew that I had a higher degree of difficulty, but he nailed his dive. I had to remind myself that they're cheering for him and not against me Mm. because we take things so personally, right? It was like, okay, they're cheering for him, not against me. And then I had this visualization, you know, I, I was visualizing, okay, you know, what could happen? And I visualized my mother sitting at home, watching it on TV because she wasn't in Seoul. And I do this bomb of a dive, my reverse three and a half, the splash goes all the way up to the 10 meter platform. And then my mother bouncing on the couch, watching TV and saying, wasn't that a pretty splash? (laughs) When we're not supposed to make a splash. (laughs) And I just started laughing. I was like, I was like, I, I just started laughing. So, I mean, you can think of all the negative things but you can flip that switch and, you know, kind of laugh at it. And, and that's what I did. And just I laughed at it, which let go of a lot of that negativity to be able to say, hey, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And just allowing my body to do what it was trained to do. Because we, we get in our heads. We, we get in our, our way so often because either we're 
trying to play safe or fear, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, totally. Um, it seems like, you know, visualization and meditation and all, all of those things have played a, played a massive role in, in your career, which I feel like was, think now they're pretty um, common, but it's then, common. Yeah. yeah, then it, it, I don't think it yeah. was as common, so... You know, Yeah, back then it was crazy because I remember, you know, the sports psychologist started coming around the pool back in, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And then I I learned visualization when I was three years old. Wow. Because what happened was my teacher, my first performance on stage, it was the, uh, the day of the recital. And so... My teacher uh, had a top hat, I had a cane, so there were some little adjustments to some of the choreography. And my teacher said, okay, do the routine fluid. Put the needle down on the record, left the room. I was three years old. And so my interpretation was, okay, imagine myself doing the routine fluid. Mm. And so I was three years old, I could you know, pick up the needle and start again. And it took about three or four times and I got it fluid. And then I found her, told her that I got it fluid, and she came back into the room, increased the tempo, and she said, make it fluid. And then the first time out, I made it fluid. She said, okay, you're ready. Wow. So that was my introduction to visualization. And I was three years old. I thought everybody knew this stuff. And I'd been practicing it all through, you know, dance and acrobatics and gymnastics and diving. You know, it was, I I wouldn't do a trick unless I could visualize it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not that common, especially for a little kid. You know, I don't think I learned about visualization until college, maybe, like maybe a little bit in high school, but... It. Yeah, and I, now I, it's really calm you know now right. it's something we talk about a lot but yeah um yeah it just and wasn't. It, the other thing that i realized is that when i was uh 11 i was fascinated by uh the series kung fu uh <laughs> it, it's before your time but david carradine you know kung fu he could uh, control his body you know to where he stopped breathing start stop his heart so you know, they would think that he was dead, you know, but he wasn't, you know, he had Mm -hmm. such control, you know, and that was, uh, through meditation. It was through, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that stuff. And I got fascinated by that. And then I found a book in my father's office and I didn't read much, but it was, um, Jose Silva's, you know, it, it was about mind control. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is it. You know, so <laughs> I, I really dug into that. And I, I didn't realize that it was Jose Silva until I came across Vishen Lakhiani did uh, the six phase meditation, was teaching that. It's like, oh, my God, this is this is what I was doing. It was it, so it must have been the Silva method, the Silva stuff. And it's like, wow, that is so cool. So it was, yeah, it was fascinating. But yeah, I mean, I was just always fascinated by that. How can we push our bodies and our minds Right, you know, yeah, your mind is so much stronger than yeah you think. Yeah. Well, kind of speaking of that, I feel like it just must have been such a tough time to go from you know disappointment in '76 and then disappointment again in 1980. Mm. Like, 
you know, I, I, I look at 1980 kind of as a mixed blessing, mm. you know, really, because in 1980, diving was something I was good at. It wasn't something I was particularly enjoying. I was in the theater department. Probably my my trajectory, had I gone to the 1980 Olympic Games, is what I had intended is if I was successful at the 80 Olympic Games, you know, I was moving to New York. I was pursuing the acting thing, you know, because that's what all my friends were doing from college. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that would have been very different. But because that was taken away from me, then it changed the focus it's like well you know i don't want to give up on that olympic gold dream right so mm-hmm. it was my coach ron o'brien his biggest concern was to keep me engaged to keep me engaged in the sport you know to keep me pushing forward you know how can how could i push forward and so he was the one who really got me through. And then once, and actually got me to 84, I broke 700 on 10 meter platform. And so I got my two gold medals. I went to the nationals right after that. And I broke Cynthia Potter's record for national titles. And my intent was to retire after that. I got all my record, you know, I got the Olympic gold. I've got broke Cynthia Potter's record. My intent was to retire after that Olympic games. But what happened was I went to the president of USA Diving at that time, Phil Boggs, and I said, well, what's going on with trust funds? Because this was during the time when we were true amateurs and Mm -hmm. we couldn't do certain things. And so um, in talking with Edwin Moses, you know, we were talking about, you know, putting trust funds in place so that an athlete can pursue his athletic career beyond college and be eligible. And so when I went to Phil and I said, what's going on with trust funds? He said, Greg, you're the only one that it affects and you're retiring. So we don't have to spend the money on the attorneys to get the trust funds put into place. I said, fine, I'm not retiring. Do your homework. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, it just really pissed me off and so then my intent was to stay eligible until the trust funds were put into place and it took two years and then in that two years I found myself at the world championships in Madrid and I won and so Ron came to me and he said well what are you going to do trust funds are in place now and you said you were going to retire but it's only two more years I said okay two years I I can do two years (laughs) You know, but I mean, what happened in that two years is pretty insane. I mean, that was yeah. who who could have known what what that was going to be like. It was because it was just, it was crazy. I know we we all joke that you can't ever say you're going to retire because then it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't make you can't make those promises. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have a like favorite year in terms of just like? training me like not necessarily competing but just when everything felt like it was clicking and it was just like you look back and you're like that was it kind of well uh, you know what I'll 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 say this and it'll probably surprise a lot of people but I'm gonna have to say the 1982 world championships in Guayaquil Ecuador the reason being I never thought I was good enough you know even after you know I you know, I won all this stuff. I won, you know, and I just didn't think I was good enough. So I, I felt, you know, kind of like an imposter. But 
what happened in 1982 in Guayaquil at the World Championships. So I won the prelims, and so I went last. And Alexander Portnoff was right before me, so he, he was second. Alexander Portnoff from the Soviet Union was introduced as Alexander Portnoff, Soviet Union, Olympic gold medalist 1980. And then I was introduced, Greg Luganis from the United States, Olympic silver medalist 1976. What? And I looked at Alexander and said, you know, and in my head I was thinking, you won the gold because I wasn't there. And so then I was kind of like on a mission, you know, mm-hmm. at that competition. And I took that on. And as it turned out, it was a great competition. And then it came down to the last dive. And I'm looking at the scoreboard to make sure that it was the correct dive number. I don't usually watch how I'm doing in, in the standings or anything. And so I saw my score, it was flashing. I was like, oh, so that meant I already won. I didn't, I didn't have to do my last dive wow. to win. It was like, okay, you know, get it together, keep it together. <laughs> you know, and as it turns out, I think, it, I think it's still the highest point spread any world championships has ever been. Been one, and that's when I felt like I arrived because I proved myself, you know. And so then that's when I felt like I deserved it. Yeah, that was pretty special. That's awesome. I totally understand, though. I feel like I constantly feel the imposter syndrome and just yeah, it's it's hard. I don't know. I don't know if everyone feels that way, but it's uh, and you know, in some ways, it can be incredibly motivating you know but you really have to be careful you know with that because you know if you're taking that imposter to the performance you know you can have all the doubts in the world but right when you perform you have to be spot on and and Mm -hmm. and it's it really is about letting go for myself I always told myself no matter what happens my mother's still gonna love me so I, it was okay, whatever happened, mm-hmm. but not to have any type of resistance as far as holding back or fear or what ifs and all that, because it really is truly about now. You know, it's all about now, that, yeah. that, that moment in time. Yeah. You have to capitalize on the moments when they present themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am also just curious about 88. It seems seemed yeah. like quite the ups and downs. And how do you think that you were prepared to deal with that? And was there ever doubt in your mind, you know, that you were going to be able to continue to compete and perform or... But do you think if that had happened at one of your earlier Olympics, like the story would have been different? I Mm. just, you know, my first Olympics was in 76 and then my last, you know, 70, uh, 88, you know, so that's 12 years. Um, It's a long time. It's a long, it is a long time. And so all, all of my experience, I mean, from my experience with Dr. Sammy Lee, you know, and that, that whole experience, he toughened me up he made me realize that I was a lot tougher than I believed myself to be. So, you know, even though it was difficult to live through, I see the value that he gave me. The other competitions, various experiences, the 10 years of, of love and trust with my coach, because you don't achieve greatness on your own. There's always someone there, you know, whether it's your coach, parent, 
friend, there's always someone there. And for me at that moment in time, it was, it was definitely my coach, Ron O'Brien. I couldn't have gotten through without him. So six months prior to the Olympic Games in 88, I was diagnosed HIV positive. When I did the test, my thought was if I tested positive, then I was going to do the honorable thing and pack my bags, move back to California because I was training in Florida, move back to California, lock myself in my house and wait to die. Because that's what we thought of HIV at that time. You know, you don't have, once you're diagnosed, you, you know, they say get your affairs in order because your ex- the expectation is you have two years at max. Wow. And so that's what I thought. You know, I thought that I wouldn't see 30. But my doctor, who is also my cousin, said, you know, the healthiest thing for you, we don't know when you were exposed to HIV. So the healthiest thing for you is to continue training, continue on that trajectory. So it was much easier and a much more positive focus to focus on my diving. I could focus on my diving and he'd take care of the medical side, make sure all that is in order. And then my coach would take care of the diving portion. That was such a blessing because so many of my friends who were diagnosed at the time that I was, their HIV became their next career. They were so immersed. Okay, what drugs are coming down the pipeline? What are my T cells? They, they were just obsessed with what was happening and there wasn't a whole lot happening. So it wasn't really encouraging. So they remained in kind of a negative space, whereas I was focused on the Olympic Games. I did have an experience that I didn't understand at the time, but I couldn't share with anybody. And that was, they put me on AZT right away. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't have anybody to talk to about my medications. One of the side effects is low testosterone. It lowers your testosterone. And mm. what I didn't realize, I, I, I was getting up in the morning literally crawling from my bed to the bathroom to pour myself the hottest bath I could stand so I could just touch my toes and function. And I just thought I I was overtraining. I I, I was afraid to tell anybody. I was afraid to tell my coach or my doctor or anything like that because, you know, I was afraid they would say, you got to back off. You can't do this. But I just kind of push through. I didn't realize that. And and also when I told my uh, co-author, Eric Marcus, he asked, you know, would, did they treat you when you were diagnosed? I said, yeah, they put me on AZT right away. And he started sobbing. And I didn't understand that. And he said, Greg, you don't understand. Any of his friends that were on AZT, they didn't tolerate it well, if they tolerated it at all, because it killed some, a lot of people. They just couldn't tolerate it. And he said, you don't understand. You won two Olympic gold medals on AZT. I said, oh, so it's not a performance enhancing drug. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have anybody to talk to, but in many ways, ignorance is bliss in situations like that. You don't know. So you don't limit yourself. Yeah. Athletes are pretty tough. Yeah. When you did officially retire, you did a lot of stuff like acting and in movies. And did you always keep in touch with, you know, diving and with the diving community? Or did you step away and then come back? Like, how was the transition Uh, away from, you know, being a professional athlete for you? You know, that was hard. I didn't feel really very welcome Mm. in that environment. There was still a lot of, you know homophobia 
and so I you know focused on other things and yeah but it also gave me the opportunity to do musicals I did Cinderella Long Beach Civic Light Opera I did Jeffrey in New York I did a one-man show in New York which I was really really proud of so um, it allowed me to step away from something and, and really focus on something that it needed that that kind of focus and now what is your role within the LA 2028 campaign yeah, with LA28, I just started, uh, there was a fellowship program that came up and it's like, oh my God, that would be so awesome because, you know, everybody says, well, what's going on with the Olympics in LA? The Olympics are coming back to LA. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, you know, <laughs> what, what, what better way than to, you know, than to know than get involved. Mm-hmm. And so this has been great. It's also been wonderful to have that, you know, connection you know, more direct connection to a lot of my fellow Olympians. And um, I was a part of 84, you know, the Los Angeles Olympics. It was, it was a pretty awesome time to be here in L.A., and that was pretty special. Yeah. So it's kind of a lot to live up to. Yeah. So that's, and, but, and, and also, I mean, it's going to be different. I mean, we're, in, we're living in such a different time than, you know, we were back then. But it's still exciting. It's super exciting. Yeah. I know. It's um it's really cool. I I also know very little about the 2028, you know, yeah. campaign. Um Yeah. Well, my but, yeah. It, it it was funny. The what brought me there was uh, I did a speaking event in Estonia for Vision Lakiani, Mind Valley University. And I spoke there and it was very mindful, very conscientious about the carbon footprint. Then I went to Fuoka, Japan for the World Aquatic Championships. And it was like single-use bento boxes and all these plastic bottles. And it was like, oh my God, it was so crazy. I asked the president, I said, you know, well, because he asked me, he said what my impression was of, of the World Championships. And I said, well, there was a lot of plastic. That's what really struck me. And I just feel like we could do better, you know. And so that is something that really kind of triggered a thought of, hey, get involved, you know, be a part of the solution. Yeah. So that's what kind of brought me there. Well, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for, uh, for chatting with me. But it, you know, and it's true. I mean, when I, you know, when I saw your podcast, the other three years, I mean, that is so incredibly powerful, you know, to anybody that has been on any type of Olympic path because we gear our lives toward that quadrennial. You know, I, I, that's how I remember every, everything is on the quadrennial. What Olympics? Oh, that was that Olympics. Okay, so two years before that or after that, that was World Championships. And then right before the Olympic Games is Pan American Games. And, you know, and it's just like you, you know, you gauge everything, you know, is what, what happens on those three years. Because when people see these elite athletes competing at the Olympic Games, that's a finished product. Yeah. You know, and so it it took years and years and years to direct and sculpt and nurture these individuals to be able to perform the way that they're going to be performing. Yeah, I uh, one of my favorite quotes from right before Tokyo was somebody you know called 
me an overnight sensation and my coach was like yeah it takes 15 years to be an overnight sensation right <laughs> right and it's but it's kind of exactly what you're talking about like you see yeah. it and yes everyone is peaked and primed and mm -hmm. as perfect you know as close to perfect as they're gonna get on tv for you know this culminating event but yeah. so much goes into it yeah. and no, you know, that was really like the precipice of mm -hmm. the podcast was just trying to share a little bit about what it's actually like and, you know, all the sports that aren't maybe the, the cover sports of the Olympics. So Right. And also you have to take a look at, you know, the whole picture because it may have been 15 years in your sport. But what oh, but your whole life. But, but your act, yeah. the activities prior to that, you know, that's the reason why, you know, I, I, it's important for me to talk about my dance when I started dancing and when I was a year and a half. I mean, because all of those skills, all of those things that you're teaching your brain and your body, movement and awareness at whatever age, that is going to facilitate your success in, in the future for, for everything. Definitely. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been fun. I've gotten to, you know, connect with so many different people and it's really cool how many similarities there are with right. athletes from, you know, different generations, different sports, different countries. Like it's, it's right. just really cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and sure. Really My pleasure. So thanks for listening and thank you to Greg for coming on the show and being so open and vulnerable to share so much with me and all of you. So to close the show this week, I'm sharing a quote from former guest on the show, Nick Baumgartner's book, Gold from Iron, that I just finished. And it was it was really good. I did. I liked it a lot. So if you like Nick's episode on the podcast, I'd really recommend reading the book. But this quote specifically was very fitting for, you know, what's been happening. So Nick wrote, you can't let one failure sabotage the next opportunity. So learn what you can from it, leave the negative behind and take the positive. So thanks for listening and have a great week. See you next time. I'd love to hear from you. So send us a topic suggestion, or if you'd like to submit a question for our Ask Christy Anything segment, head to our website, theother3years.com.